Our other members worked at Chain of Love, which is like an orphanage. We've got two of our members that are still traveling. They're in Peru right now. And so in a couple of weeks, when they get back, we are going to do an update in the service. We've got some uh, video PowerPoint to show you some pictures, and we will give you some highlights from that trip when we all get back. One of the things, though, whenever I do any trips like this to Brazil or to Cameroon, other countries, it always helps me to gain some perspective on life, on God, on the church, on, on the world, our country. And it can be a very helpful thing to step out of what is familiar for us and to get into things that may be a little bit uncomfortable at times to help shake up our perspective. Every one of us needs that regularly, a perspective shift. You've probably all been told at one point in your life that you need to get some perspective. Maybe one of your kids have told you that. Or maybe you've told one of your children that. You get bogged down in details, and we can worry and become anxious. We are and spinning our wheels. We burn the candle at both ends, as those proverbial cliches go. And in the midst of that, we lose perspective. Your wife doesn't seem as attractive as she once was. Your husband doesn't seem to be as interesting as he once was. Your job is boring. And I saw some men and women nodding at that point when I was referring to the other spouse. Not good, don't do that. <laughs> Your job is boring, unchallenging, the kids are driving you crazy. School seems like it's going to last forever, and you keep asking that question, when am I ever going to use this stuff? Your prayers don't seem to be listened to. Your life, your faith, it all just seems pointless. It doesn't seem to be moving anywhere. And it's at times like this that we can be vulnerable to making stupid choices. Choices that can affect us forever. All of a sudden, the neighbor's wife seems more attractive. Now, don't nod your head. All of a sudden, the neighbor's husband appears to be just that much more interesting. School or career or your kids seem to be a waste of time and are disregarded. Or on the flip side, we look at school, career, or our kids as that which gives us fulfillment and meaning in our life, and we make them into idols. And then along comes one of God's spokesmen, prophet, preacher. And he says, Lord, open their eyes so that they can see. God's spokesperson comes along and she says, Lord, give them some perspective. This morning I want to share with you a story that's all about perspective. It's in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. And one of the things about this story is that there's a line in it that I find to be one of the funniest and creepiest lines in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 6, the story is from 8 to 23. 
When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elijah, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place, for the Armenians are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elijah warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this, and he called all of his officers together and demanded, which of you is a traitor? Who's been informing the king of Israel of my every plan? It's not us, my lord, one of the officers replied. Elijah, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back, Elijah is at Dotham. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround that city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elijah. Don't be afraid, Elijah said, for there are more on our side than are on theirs. And then Elijah prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. In other words, Lord, give him the right perspective. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elijah was filled with horses and chariots of fire. As the Armenian army advanced towards him, Elijah prayed, O oh Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness, as Elijah had asked. Then Elijah went out and told them, You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elijah prayed, O oh Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elijah, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elijah replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. And after that, the Armenian raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. Historically, this story took place about 850 years before Christ, or from our time, about 2,850 years ago. Israel had been divided into a northern and a southern kingdom by this point, about 80 years earlier, and Joram was the king in the north. Gone were Israel's glory days when the kingdom was united, when David was on the throne, or when Solomon was on the throne and there was peace in the land. Now there was warfare, there was fighting, raids from other people groups, and even animosity between Israel and the north and the south. During this weakened state, the Syrian king of Aram was one of the individuals who was at war with Israel. 
The Bible doesn't record this to just give us historical information, but it records this and these stories to help us gain perspective. Gain perspective not just on what happened in Bible times, but to gain perspective in regards to our times today. To show us how God continues to act. And usually when a perspective needs to be gained, what God does is he sends messengers, prophets, preachers. In this story, Elijah is God's preacher, and he's found doing what preachers do today. They're perspective shifters. They help people to see from God's perspective. As a pastor, my main responsibility is to help people gain perspective. Preaching on Sunday, comforting people at funerals, visiting a family grieving over a sick child, rebuking the religiously arrogant, encouraging the wounded, prodding the spiritually lazy, warning those who are chasing after money, offering forgiveness to people who repent, speaking hope to the forgotten. They're all messages to shift perspective or to help people gain perspective. That is our job to be spokespeople for God so that people can have a proper God perspective. Not just any perspective, but God's perspective. That is why we must be continually immersed in the Scripture. Not just dabbling in the Scripture, not just basing things based on how we feel, but immersed in the Scripture so that we can see the way God works and we can proclaim that the battle against Israel was not going well for the king of Aram not because the king of Aram had bad strategies not because he had a weak army but because he had a enemy that seemed to know everything that he was doing if you have an enemy that knows everything that you're doing, it is not possible to win against such an enemy. The military spends millions to spy out the secrets of their enemy, to decode their plans. Secrets are the secret of success. Maybe. It's this kind of success that the Christian publishing industry is trying to tap into with its overuse of the word secret in almost every single thing it publishes. In fact, I went to christianbook.com and I typed in the word secret into their book search and came up with 2,486 entries. Everything from the Christian's secret of a happy life to secrets of the vine, prayer, the Timeless Secret of High-Impact Leaders, The Bride Wore White, Seven Secrets of Sexual Purity, The Secret of Handling Money God's Way, Secret Scriptures Revealed, The New Introduction to the Christian Apocrypha, The Secret on Arap, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, The Call to the Secret Place, Even Secrets of the Secret Place. In fact, <laughs> in, in fact, uh, 
My wife and I are doing a home Bible or, or a book study for the summer holidays, this uh, Seven Women by Eric Metaxas, and I realized as I was putting the sermon that the subtitle says, and the secret of their greatness. So I think Christians need to just like pause on the word secret for a while. It's being a bit overdone. But secrets are what we want to find out about someone else if we're going to be able to infiltrate their plans. In a baking competition, you don't reveal your secret recipe. Willy Wonka had to shut down his chocolate factory because all the other candy stores found out his secrets. And the offensive line in football always comes together in a huddle. Why? So that they can secretly plan out the next play so that the other team cannot see what it's going to be. If your opponents know what you're up to, you are defeated. It's why we want our privacy. It's why we want to keep the government out of our bedrooms. We don't want a government, we don't want a society in which those that are over us know every single thing about us, which is the constant debate about surveillance and cameras and things like that. We don't want them to control the most intimate details of our lives because we recognize secrets as a basic human right. We recognize that if we are to have freedom and if we are to have individuality, we have to be able to have secrets. For someone to know all of our secrets is for them to be able to control us. But we cannot take what makes sense at a human level and apply it to God. That's often the danger of creating a God in our own image. What makes sense at a human level doesn't always apply to God. And that's where God's preachers remind us of a God perspective. And that is when it comes to God, you can't keep God out of the bedroom. It's impossible. In other words, you have no ability to keep a secret from God. Which means, if knowing someone's secrets gives you control over that person, it means that God has absolute control over our lives. We have no freedom when it comes to God's control over us. He knows everything about us, even the most intimate details. The king of Aram's plans were continually foiled because Israel knew what he was up to. How is this possible? Was there a traitor? Somebody that was betraying his plans? No. It, because, it was because there was a perspective shifter by the name of Elijah who was continually telling Israel what Aram was up to. And now, as I promised, here is that very funny and creepy line from the story. And that is when the king is so frustrated because it seems like everything that he does, the king of Israel already knows. He brings his people before him. He asks if there are any traitors. One of them, brave enough, speaks up and says, None of us are traitors, my lord. And then says, But Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel, the very words you speak in your bedroom. 
See, that's creepy. Every little whisper that you've said in the privacy of your bedroom, the king of Israel can find out like that because he's got a prophet of God who can tell him. Wow. When I was a child, we used to sing a song that said, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Or be careful, the words you say, all these things. There's a father up above who is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I don't know about you, but I found that sermon or song quite creepy as a little kid. Maybe my mind's a little bit more warped than other people, but I would listen to that song and I go, that means God sees me when I'm in the bathroom. Uh, that means God sees me when I'm looking over the shoulder of somebody else writing a test and I'm peeking at their answers. That means that God sees me when I'm leafing through a stack of porn magazines that I found in the ditch out in the acreage. God sees all of that. And because of our King of Aram syndrome, that line about looking down in love kind of gets missed. Doesn't seem to be looking down in love so much as just looking down at every detail of our life. But in the same way, that also means that God sees every single one of our positive and careful and caring and loving things that we do that are often missed by other people as well. I'll never forget the friendship I developed with a man by the name of Pete Tommen. I had to hunt quite uh, hard to find a picture of Pete from my last church at Greenfield. He was a quiet man and somebody very unassuming. He would not, unless you knew him, even knew if he came or went Sunday after Sunday. He became a Christian a few years before I died, before he died, or I died. It's weird. I came back from the dead. Uh, a few years before he died, he became a Christian, and I had the privilege of baptizing him about one year before his death. Now, what was so interesting about Pete was that at his funeral, for this 85-year-old guy that I didn't think anybody really knew, the church sanctuary filled up with all of these junior high and high school kids. And I had no idea what these kids were doing there. And then during the ceremony, there was kind of an open mic, and this principal from the school got up, and he started talking about the many years that Pete volunteered at his school in the impact that he made on student after student after student. And then all these students got up, and one by one, they started paying tribute to this 85-year-old man. Now, I knew Pete for five years while I was at the church before he died, and he never once mentioned to me that he did this. Even after he became a Christian, even when I baptized him, even when he shared his testimony with the church, he never mentioned any of his volunteering, any of his connection with these students at the school. Even family members of his came up to me after the funeral and said, I never knew Pete did all this. And the secrecy of his own life and love and caring. He loved and ministered to these kids for years at this school, even before he became a Christian. And nobody knew. 
except maybe the few people he impacted. And then when it became public at his funeral, except for God, because there's no secrets with God. God knew every single thing that Pete did. Whatever is going on in your secret life, positive, negative, there's no secrets from God. And one of the perspectives that we need to gain is this perspective that the king of Aram had to gain. And that is that you may worship your gods, you may have all the plans and strategies and the biggest army, but there is a God who knows the most intimate details of your life. He even knows the very things that you whisper in the privacy of your bedroom. And if there's a God like that who's out there, then King, you are not ultimately in charge. There is one who is in charge of everything, and you can't keep secrets from him. I think that's a reminder that every one of us needs to take to heart to help us shift some of our perspectives, that God does know every detail of our lives, and he is ultimately in control. It is what we mean when we say that God is all-knowing, omniscient. But the king was not the only one in this story to have his perspective shifted. Upset at Elijah knowing the very things he spoke in the privacy of his bedroom, the king decides to go find Elijah and to stop him. Now, right there, you know this king is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Because if every single one of your plans, every single one of your details that you whisper this prophet knows because of his God, then coming up with a plan to get this prophet is probably going to be known by him. Somehow he didn't think that through. And so he thinks that he's going to concoct some plan to get Elijah and finds out where Elijah is going to be heading and sends his army to get him. So once he's there, they surround the city and Elijah's servant, who's in the city, wakes up in the bright of the day when the sun comes out, looks out, and sees this mass army and panics. Elijah, maybe one of the plans of the king of Aram wasn't revealed to you. Maybe God forgot something. Now we're trapped. Now he's finally going to get us. There's no way out. We're surrounded. Look at his army. And it's now time for him to have a perspective shift. Oh Lord, Elijah, what shall we do? Elijah responds, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now we've got to pause right there because we jump too quickly in the story and say, boom, salt. You've got to realize that usually Preachers, prophets, speakers of God seem kind of insane most of the time because you don't get the perspective of God right away. You hear the message first, and sometimes there's a gap before that message is fulfilled. And so when he says this, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I can just see the guy standing next to Elijah going, one, two. Uh, Elijah, like, did you take math? There's no way. Look around. 
There's a few servants running around here carrying water and all. How can you possibly say there are more people on this side than that side? You just have to look. You just have to see. You just have to do some calculations. It's obvious. Why can't you see properly? And then Elijah prayed, Oh Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Often we can't see God's message because it doesn't make sense at face value. It takes a spiritual awakening, our eyes to be open to see from a different perspective. Oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Ah, okay. Yeah, you're right. Our army is bigger than their army. And as Elijah's servant's eyes are opened, what's interesting is the army is going to have a perspective shift as well because they're going to have their eyes shut. As the enemy came down towards him, Elijah then also prayed, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elijah asked. Elijah's servant had his eyes opened. Aram's army, Elijah's enemies, God's enemies had their eyes shut. Once again, Elijah is God's perspective shifter, revealing to us that God is hardly impressed with the things that we get impressed by. What we get impressed by, what we get intimidated by, what we look out over the walls and see panic and see as either wonderful or horrible, often means very little to God. We pursue many unnecessary things that we think are necessary. Like Elijah's servant, we see the army and we think the worst. We're easily impressed by what in reality is so small and so temporal. It's one of the reasons I always find myself warning Christians to to not hit the panic button. There seems to be so many panicking Christians all the time. Oh, everything's falling apart, everything's... And I'm just like, what? Get some perspective. First off, God is in ultimate control. Do you believe that? If he is, why are we panicking all the time? He is in control. We pursue too often the seen rather than the unseen. We chase the temporary rather than the eternal. We spend more time watching our investments than investing in time with God. We pursue degrees, but we don't pursue wisdom. We make a living rather than make a life. We build houses but we don't build homes. We push our kids rather than play with our kids, and we become religious rather than become relational. And God comes in and uses his spokespeople to help us gain perspective and say, what are we doing? This is not how we are meant to live. I have so much more and so much better for you. I often wonder when I read the story, what kind of blindness did God really strike this army with? Because in the context of the story, physical blindness makes no sense of the story at all. I mean, think about it. So here's this army, comes up to this 
big fortress, and then suddenly they're struck completely blind. Let's just say that's what happened. This is where it makes no sense. So they're all blind, and then Elijah comes out to them and says, hey guys, you went to the wrong city, just follow me. And a bunch of blind people in an army go, all right, can't see anything, but let's follow this guy. And then it says he leads them to Samaria, which is 15 kilometers away. So Elijah would have had to have led a completely blind army for 15 kilometers. You know, they're, they're all the way. And then what were they thinking? They thought this guy was going to lead them to the right city, but they're all blind. What did they think they would do when they got to the right city? If they're blind, fight it blind? So it makes no sense for God to have struck them physically blind, follow some random leader for 15 kilometers, go to the proper city, quote-unquote, and then in their blindness, fight it. So it seems to make more sense that the blindness that they were struck with was some kind of stupidity, some kind of confundment of the mind, confusion. Somehow God confused their mind so that when Elijah came out and said, hey guys, I'm the one in charge here, you're at the wrong city, follow me, they all somehow said, yeah, he's actually the commander, let's follow this guy and then marched for 15 kilometers to the wrong city. Somehow God confused their minds. And God can do that. He has often done that in the Bible, and he often does that even today. Seems kind of weird, but he's in ultimate control. That sometimes God will even purposely confuse our minds to get us in trouble because he knows it's the only way he's going to teach us something. There are times when God hardens hearts. There are times that God directly intervenes in allowing us to go on a dangerous pathway because he knows that it's the only way we are going to eventually gain perspective. Paul describes this kind of loss of perspective like this. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him but their thinking becomes futile, their foolish hearts are darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of God for images. Our thinking became confused. It seems to be what has happened to this army, because look what God's gonna do with this army. It's the third perspective shift. He changes the perspective of the king to remind him that God knows all secrets. He knows all things. There's no secrets from God. He's ultimately in control. Unfortunately, just by having your perspective shifted doesn't mean you get it, because obviously the king of Aram didn't get it, because he still went down the path of trying to get God's people. Secondly, he changes the perspective of Elijah's servant to help him recognize that the kinds of things that impress us or make us fear or, or, or make us think of wonderful things don't impress God. They don't make God think they're wonderful and they don't make God afraid. And then God also, through Elijah, blinds this army and he's going to give them and Israel a perspective shift. This is one of the things that God does, that sometimes he actually shifts our perspective by closing our eyes for a time. 
before he could open them. So after Elijah leads this army for 15 kilometers into the very city of Samaria, then God opens their minds, or as I understand the story, he unconfuses their minds. And they find themselves captured right in the middle of Samaria. Like, ah, what are we doing here? I knew we shouldn't have walked for 15 kilometers without seeing where we were going. Now that the king of Israel has captured the enemy that has been plaguing them and they're surrounded in the city, he asks Elijah what seems to be the obvious question. He says, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them, Lord? The fact that that's repeated in the Bible, you can almost hear the eagerness of Jotham, the king of Israel. Shall I kill him, Lord? Salivating. Oh, shall I kill him? I mean, just think of how brutal that would have been. Here's an army completely captured in the middle. Of, it would have just been a slaughter, a bloodbath. But listen to the message of God's perspective shifter. Something that is going to be uh, completely astonishing to the king of Israel, the people of Israel, and to this captured army. Do not kill them, Elijah answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword, um, sword or bow? Now that alone might have been okay. Don't kill them. We're going to show some mercy. I don't really like that, but maybe I can go that far. But Elijah goes even one step farther. He says, but set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. And the next verse says that it wasn't just food and water because the next verse says, so he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. And you can't help but think, what? what that, that's not what you do. That, that's not the right response. Someone backs out of their parking stall at Save On Food and bumps into my car, I sue them. That's what you do. You get even, you exercise vengeance, you throw the first stone. I mean, everybody that's been watching the World Cup knows that when you score a goal, you, you gloat, you showboat, you mock the enemy. That's what you do. Can't we? Please, Elijah. Okay, if we, if we can't kill them, can we at least just surround them and go, yeah, we got you. Can we at least mock them? Can we, like, can we spit on them? Can we, can we throw dirt on them? Can we at least do something that kind of would humiliate them? No. I want you to prepare a good meal for them. Take care of them, take care of their needs, and send them on their way. The third perspective shift that comes from out of Elijah's mouth is that God is merciful even towards his enemies. Israel's enemies are given a feast and then set free. What would these guys, when they got home, have said to their wives? How do you explain that? Okay, so, went to battle today. King told us to attack the city. We went there. And then we 
got there, then all of a sudden we started questioning one another if we actually arrived at the right place. So this guy comes out, don't really know, he looked like a commander or something like that. He told us we were at the wrong city, so seemed like he knew what he was talking about. So we all walked off to the, to the right city, about a 15-kilometer hike. When we got there, we went, entered right into the city. It was kind of a weird battle. They left their uh, gates open, so we walked right into the middle of the city. And then all of a sudden, we recognized, what are we doing? We're in the enemy city. And then we thought, oh, we're dead, because the king came out and surrounded us with his armies and all that. And then you know what he did? He put a banquet table out and put food out and wine and, and dessert. It was wonderful. Then he sent us home. I mean, that would be the weirdest story in the world to tell. What kind of battle plan was that? What kind of enemy was that? And what kind of end to a battle was that? That kind of stuff just doesn't happen, except that maybe when they started looking at it deeper, they said, you know what this is all about? The God of those people, the God of Israel, is a God who shows mercy. In fact, being blinded by this God and marched to that city and then having our eyes open and be fed was all his work to show us that he's in ultimate control. And he shows mercy, even to us non-Israelites. And as we see throughout the, the Old Testament and we see throughout the New Testament and even as we see throughout church history, many times this message is harder for God's people to get even than for the enemies. That Israel had to come to realize God loves our enemies. God shows mercy on them just as much as us. We're God's chosen people. That does not mean we're God's chosen people that he shows extra mercy to us, extra love to us. It simply means that we're chosen by God to tell everybody else that we have a God of love and mercy that cares and loves them. God shows mercy to all. God loves people, all people. Our special chosenness is to share that message. God loves his enemies. He extends mercy to all. And God's people are called not to crush their enemies, but to bless them by setting before them a table of food. To say, come and eat. May we bless you. May we help you. May we bind up your wounds. And may we care for you. See, God's calling us to get some perspective. Where privacy is important and does have a place between humans, you can't keep God out of the bedroom. There's no privacy, no secrets with God, and this means he has absolute control over every aspect of your life. And where we are impressed by armies and missiles and awards and money and promotion, God is hardly impressed by the things that impress us. And where we want to strike back and get even and fight it out, God is merciful even towards our enemies. And so it's time to get perspective. It's time to shift our thinking. When you think you're losing interest in your spouse, 
when your job seems boring and unchallenging, when your parents are driving you crazy, when school seems like it's going to last forever, when your prayers don't seem to be heard, when your church no longer has that homey feeling, when the government disappoints you, when your injuries act up again, and when your beliefs are ridiculed, it's time to get some perspective and to see life and the world from God's perspective, not from the narrowness of your own. Nothing catches God by surprise. He knows everything. And what impresses and worries us hardly impresses and worries God. And God's mercy extends to you and your enemies. And therefore, you need to show mercy to your enemies. And also, and many of us need to understand this, you need to show mercy to yourself. Because God does love you, and God's grace does extend to you. We can experience a lot more peace. We just need to gain God's perspective. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your prophets, your people that have spoken often to much hostility and for many people not understanding them. But we thank you, Lord, that they boldly proclaimed your perspective anyway. So God, giver of every good and perfect gift, give us a true love for you. Give us a love that will bear no grudge. Give us a love which will refuse no obedience. And give us a love which will resent no trial. God, give us a life of true faith. Help us to show our love for you by loving others. Help us to be in the world and yet keep ourselves unspotted by the sins of the world. Help us to match the deeds of our hands with the words of our lips. God, give us a life of true goodness. Give us the goodness which is not only pure but also lovely. Give us the goodness which not only resists sin but loves the sinner. Give us the goodness which reflects the beauty of the life of Jesus. God, give our life the gift of perseverance. Give us the perseverance to stay true to your way. And when we fall, help us to rise again. Where there is a cross, help us to see beyond it and to see from the perspective of the crown. God, help us to live our lives in love, service, and faithfulness so that we may come to the end in peace and enter your new age when you make all things new. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.